Welcome to episode 25 of Two Larrys and a Mike. I'm Larry Dowdy. I'm uh, Larry Blake, excuse me. Are you okay? <laughs> well, the traffic was backed up uh, to Woodstock, <laughs> and I just got in. Six miles I've walked. Boy, are my arms tired. After all these years. Yeah, I'm just getting here. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike? Mike? Oh, you want to... Hey, Mike? Mike, hey, uh, Mike where, where, is... where is Mike? Oh, my. What is this? Oh, well, Mike is recreating in the studio what was to be his performance at Woodstock. <laughs> the only harpsichord player scheduled to perform there, to our knowledge. Uh, unfortunately, his VW van broke down on the way to Woodstock, and he had to lug the harpsichord nearly eight miles. Very sad. By the time he got it there, of course, it had worn the legs off of it. Um, but anyway, uh, he had ruptured himself and was unable to go on stage. Oh, I'm yes, sorry to hear that. He was helicoptered to a nearby hospital to fix a rupture. Well. <laughs> Sadly, he has to wear a truss to this day. <laughs> oh, and by the way, sometime later, they did discover what yeah. was left of the harpsichord. <laughs> A hollowed-out shell with six hippies living inside it. <laughs> so, I had just, no idea oh, it's always, Mike could play the harpsichord. Oh, it's always something with Mike, because, you know, it's a surprise minute with Mike. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, as you can tell, uh, we're going to revisit the summer of 69. Brian Adams hadn't even thought about his hit because he was only nine years old at the time. But uh, that summer, half a million people attended a three-day festival at Woodstock in upstate New York. I know what you're thinking. What could possibly the two Larrys tell us that we don't, haven't heard about Woodstock in the last 50 years? And the answer to that, folks, is, well, not much. Uh, well, and <laughs> and I'll tell try. you, our, our crack research team <laughs> just about cracked up. We are going to try, though. because I think we're going to have a lot of backstories and yep. uh, maybe some stuff you haven't heard about Woodstock. That's what we're going to attempt to do today. We'll get to that in a moment, but first... A time for living. Let's see who is a year older. Well, songwriter Kenneth Gamble of Gamble and the Huff, 78 years old. Bassist Jim Cale of the Guess Who is 78. Eric Carmen, you remember Eric Carmen, mm -hmm. 72 years old. Singer Joe Jackson just recently turned 67. Wow. Uh, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, uh, 90. Robert Cray, blues mu musician, is 68. Michael Penn, 63. Joe Elliott of Def Leppard. 62, Dash Crofts of Seals and Crofts, 83. David Crosby turned 80 recently. You know which one was Seals? By looking at him, it was the one with the fish in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Old joke. <laughs> Singer Ronnie Bennett Greenfield. Who would that be, Mr. Dottie? Ronnie, uh, uh, Ronnie Bennett Greenfield. I don't know. Ronnie Spector of ah, the Ronettes, 78 years got old. Got it. Singer flutist, or is that flautist? <laughs> Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull just turned 74, and singer Patty Austin, 71. All right. Larry Graham of Sly and the Family Stone, 75. See Steve Martin, 76. Now, now the reason I included, uh, we included uh, Steve Martin is because he is a musician. You know, he plays yes. a mean banjo. A mean banjo. Yeah. Yes. Drummer Pete York of uh, the Spencer Davis Group, 79 years old. Jimmy Webb, a songwriter. Mm hmm 75 years old, uh, singer-guitarist Tom Johnston of the Doobie Brothers just yep. turned 73. And i got to wrap it up the best way I can here, Tony Bennett. 
Oh, yeah. 95. Wow. So, anyway, happy birthday to all of the above. The old podcast band kicking in right there. So, the Woodstock Music and Art Fair. Ladies and gentlemen, to continue, please warmly welcome with us Credence Clearwater Revival. All right, friends, you have seen the heavy groups. Now you will see Morning Maniac music. Believe me, yeah. It's a new dawn. to an extra day, apparently, uh, early Monday, August 18th, and featured some 32 acts. And actually, in the woods behind Woodstock, mm-hmm. the woods behind Woodstock, no, uh, yes. they're they actually, uh, people showed their artwork, you know, all sorts of artwork yeah, yeah. and beads and stuff they had right, made. Right. So yeah, there actually was an art fair, too. Uh, Max Yasker's Farm. Dairy Farm. Yeah. Yep, they're in uh, Bethel, New York, and there were plenty of cows near Woodstock, from what I understand. The cows were in attendance. Apparently, they didn't mind. Uh, the, the music didn't phase them one way or the other. They're quite docile. Uh, well, there you go. Uh, or they, they just like what they were hearing. I don't know. But uh, the farm was about 40 miles uh, southwest of the town of Woodstock. Mm-hmm. But that seemed to be the place to be. I was, um, I saw an interview with Max Yasker, and he was talking about the whole Woodstock event. We have a gentleman with us. It's the gentleman upon whose farm we are, Mr. Max Yasker. I'm a farmer. I don't know. I don't know how to speak to. 20 people at one time, let alone a crowd like this. But I think you people have proven something to the world. Not only to town of Bethel or Sullivan County or New York State, you've proven something to the world. This is the largest group of people ever assembled in one place. Three days of fun and music. And have nothing but fun and music. And I got bless you for it. Now, what was interesting about the whole Woodstock event, apparently the neighbors weren't real knocked out about this. Including one Bob Dylan, I might add. He lived nearby. <laughs> Did he really? He, oh, well, yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that. Well, he had his motorcycle accident while he was driving through the town of Woodstock. Oh, wow. Actually, Bethel, I think is the name of it. But yeah, anyway, yeah. he lived right next door and refused to come out of the house. He had nothing to do with it. <laughs> and think about this that event that ran from august 15th through the 18th or into the 18th um made max yasker 
five thousand dollars. That's some. Well, he got paid more than a lot of the performers well, did. And I'm gonna, yeah, I'm really. gonna be talking about that a little bit later on. Who got paid what? That's kind of fascinating. So here we are in 2021. It's the 52nd anniversary of Woodstock. Well, Woodstock looked or seemed like a big old outdoor mess. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Uh, so what was behind it and how organized was it really? Well, Michael Lang, who was a music promoter, got with Artie Kornfeld, the youngest vice president of Capitol Records, with the idea of a, setting up a recording studio in Woodstock. That's how this whole thing started. They wanted to set up a recording studio. Hmm. And uh, to fund the building of that studio, they decided to do a series of concerts, or better still, a full-fledged music festival, which is what it turned into. Mm -hmm. So to get needed capital, they advertised for investors in the Wall Street Journal, if you can believe that. (laughs) And they attracted two very big ones. One of the two entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, I can never say that word, say it for me later. Entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. thank you. Uh, was 23-year-old John Roberts using money from his family business, Pico Pay Dental Pharmaceutical Company. <laughs> he said, I laid out the plan to my father. I wanted my $200,000 of my inheritance right now. And my father said, I knew it. I just knew you'd do something stupid like this when you got the hands on that money. <laughs> Another investor, Joel Roseman, put it. Uh, he put on another two hundred fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and they now had a war chest of over a half million dollars. Can you believe that? Wow! Plus, Joel was also an attorney, and he was put in charge of writing and reviewing contracts and securing licenses of fees. So mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. was done by the book. Sure. So in between the four of them, it was strictly a business proposition, well run, well watched over. Mm -hmm. They set up a banking account locally, hired professional staff for the concert, engineers to set up audio and video of the event, professional photographers to make sure there'd be a book, and videographers to film the entire event for the movie. They made payroll. Everybody got paid. Wow. The only unorganized thing about it was, of course, the unexpected half million people (laughs) who showed up. Most uh, not paying. Mm -hmm. Once the fences were down, the gates were crashed, nobody paid. In fact, only 50,000 people of the half million ever paid to see the concert. All advanced ticket sales. That's the only way they got them. But hardly anyone else. And with the later sale of movie rights, recording rights, the sale of books and records and other articles... It would take about 20 years before everyone got their investment back, but they did indeed get it back, and it was all run as a business. And by the way, the studio mm-hmm. yeah. was never built. Interesting. Yeah. See, yeah. I told you we'd come up with a few things nobody heard. Yeah. And did you hear a lot of people showed up? Uh, a whole <laughs> lot of people. I saw some numbers of the 400,000 who ultimately attended uh, 300,000 uh, were never charged an admission fee. So, bunch of bums. Yeah. <laughs> Always somebody trying to get a free ride. Uh, here's something that I thought was just fascinating. What's that? Amplification and audio for such a big venue had to literally be invented. Mm-hmm. Uh, a legend among engineers, a guy by the name of uh, Bill Hanley, okay. was hired to design, create, and build the biggest audio system ever for this event. Planning uh, went into months in advance. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had handled audio already for uh, other outdoor events, the New York Jazz 
uh, Festival, right. designing systems for the Jefferson Airplane, and even non-musical events like Shea Stadium and even President Johnson's 1965 inauguration in front of the Capitol, Washington, D.C. The guy was used to doing stuff on yeah, a big level. Yeah. On his specifications, audio company Altec Lansing built huge speaker cabinets that weighed a half ton each. Whoa. And each set of woofers carried four 15-inch Lansing D-140 speakers. And behind the stage, there were three transformers providing 2,000 amps of power. <laughs> For many years, the system pioneered at Woodstock was collectively known as the Woodstock Bins. There was so much electricity <laughs> flying through the air, people were being shocked left and right every time it rained. Of oh, I, I can imagine. And, and, of course, that was the whole thing, uh, partially why uh, the three-day event rolled over into a fourth day. Right. Because of these sporadic rain showers. Right. But they, you know, kept kept performing uh, as they went along. I found it interesting, though, Larry, the, uh, the first day... Mm. Didn't officially begin till 5.07 p.m. Now, that I didn't know. Yeah. and uh, Why course, was that? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know why. Yeah, of course, it was a Friday at that point. But uh, Richie Havens is the one who uh, who kicked off the, uh, the event. How about that? And he was the first act in the cornfield there at uh, Woodstock. The first song played at Woodstock. I had to go back and look. And listen to this, because I'd never heard it before. Minstrel from Galt. Minstrel came down from Galt With scars and tales to tell Some of them were true Some of them were false The fourth song that Richie Havens performed at Woodstock mm. was With a Little Help. From my friends. How about that? The, uh, the fifth song was Strawberry Fields Forever, and the sixth song in his set, Hey Jude. <laughs> okay. All right. What's wrong with this picture here? I don't know. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you what's, what, why that happened, because so many people like Melanie, and he talks about it, mm -hmm. uh, they would get on stage to do their set, and then the stage manager would come over and whisper, hey, you got to fill it. 40 more minutes because we can't <laughs> next group is not ready or, right right we're setting up the audio on the other stage there were actually two rotating stages so they would go back and forth mm -hmm. between, mm -hmm. you know so that's why a lot of people ended up singing and playing other people's songs because they were filling they were vamping right right so you know that's how that i uh, found it very interesting too i don't know if you know if you have any uh joan baez to mention here of course joan was still you know the folksy kind of artist, kind of like uh, Richie Havens was considered at the time. Joan Baez was six months pregnant. Get out of here. When she uh, performed at Woodstock, and she was the very last person uh, following uh, Arlo Guthrie, uh, the very last person to perform on the first night. Mm. So it was probably close to midnight, maybe a little, little after midnight. How about that? Before she got uh, got to perform, how the acts get through the crowd to the stage? <laughs> well, Michael Lang and his staff had the foresight that these guys had their act together to hire a couple of helicopters mm -hmm. and pilots for mm -hmm. three days, and the musicians were flown in and out, as were medical personnel and anyone requiring hospitalization, because some people did. There were, by the way, nearly a half dozen doctors at the festival. 
because a half million people is uh, an entire city. Yes. People getting hurt and overdosed and having babies and needing medical care. Did anyone die at Woodstock? I hope not. Yes. Really? But not until it was over and almost uh, everybody had gone home. Okay. The field was a mess of garbage and trash and muddy sleeping bags that people left behind. Mm-hmm. And as one worker was running around on a tractor collecting this stuff, he ran over what he thought was another of the hundreds of bags. But unfortunately, a guy was oh, sleeping no. in it and he was crushed by the tractor wheels. Uh, That's sad. Yeah. Not everyone enjoyed their time on stage at Woodstock. You want to know why? Why? Oh, there were a lot of reasons. The weather was one of them. (laughs) I understand that, yeah. The Grateful Dead said uh, of their performance, it was the worst we ever played. Pretty chaotic. People were screaming that the stage was collapsing. Mm -hmm. Jerry Garcia was getting shocked every time he touched his guitar. And once he touched the mic, it slammed him back against his amplifier. (laughs) It said there was so much electricity running all over, we were all scared to death. (laughs) Peter Townsend of The Who thought Mm -hmm. the whole thing was awful. I'm talking about the whole thing. Really? Yeah. Now, here's the interesting thing about The Who. They played more songs than anyone in the entire weekend, like 23 songs. Well, his bandmates did not agree with him. They oh, called okay. him a... <clears throat> but I won't mention what of they course, called Of course, maybe him. it's the fact that they didn't get to take the stage till Sunday morning at 5 a.m. Well, that's <laughs> bad, too. He said, you know, we had all these hippies wandering around in the mud, and I'm thinking they were thinking the world was going to change, and I'm thinking if that's the world they want to live in, Heck with a whole lot. We were in a lot of trouble. Wow. He, he hated every minute of it. Wow. But his band didn't agree with him. Huh. Well, I'll bet you want to know this. What's that? Did anyone play that wasn't scheduled to play or even invited to? I think I know the answer, but I'm not going to spoil it. Well, you won't win anything if oh, you okay. give an answer. Um, yes, it was John Sebastian of the Love was, and Spoonful. That was who I thought. He said he just went to see what the concert was all about. He was just yeah. curious, and uh, he knew most of the performers. Uh, his band had just broken up, so it had nothing to do. Mm-hmm. So he was hanging out backstage, and suddenly the stage manager says, we need to clean the stage from all this water from this huge storm. Right. So could you do an acoustical set to fill some time? And he borrowed a guitar from another musician and went out and entertained the crowd for nearly an hour. Whoa. How about that? What a nice guy. Uh, One of the bands that performed on that Sunday, you may have heard of a group called Creedence Clearwater Revival. Mm -hmm. CCR. Uh Uh-huh. John Fogarty, Stu Cook, Doug Clifford had first played together as the Blue Velvets at their high school in North California. That was in 1959. John's brother, Tom, later joined the group. And get this, their first recording deal was with the San Francisco Orchestra label. In 1961, they were signed to Fantasy Records as the Gollywogs. I remember that, yes. uh, Recording a cover of Van Morrison's Brown Eyed Girl. Didn't wasn't the best seller in the world, but it wasn't until December '67 that they became Creedence Clearwater Revival, and their first single was "Susie Q," Part One. How about that? Uh, it was the number 95 song in 1968. <laughs> 95. Wow! I mentioned that Creedence kicked off the day on Sunday. And that was following, maybe Sunday was one of the better days. I, I don't know. But Credence, Janis Joplin, Sly and the Family Stone, The Who, 
Jefferson Airplane, Joe Cocker, and uh, Country Joe and the Fish, 10 years after, and the band all performed. But Saturday, uh, actually Saturday started it all, just kept going into Sunday and just kept rolling after that. Saturday opened at like one twenty in the afternoon. Wow. Who was not at Woodstock? Who was not? Well, I wasn't. What, you were. No. Most of us weren't at Woodstock. Well, the Beatles weren't there. I think they had broken yeah, up. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Monkeys weren't there. Uh-huh. Uh, the, I don't know. They I, Would that have been a monkey crowd? Well, you see, well, I didn't think it was a Sha-Na-Na crowd. Well, yeah, good point. They were there. Yeah, yeah. They were there. Uh, the Doors. The Doors? I wonder why wouldn't the Doors have been at an event like oh, that? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, because, you know, I, I have some of the answers. This would have been the perfect song, too. It would have been. <laughs> well, actually, this didn't come out for two more years after Woodstock. I know. Uh, in his excellent book on Jim Morrison, author Stephen Davis says, The Doors either were not invited mm-hmm. or refused to perform at the Woodstock Music and Art Fair. Held in an alfalfa pasture in upstate New York over yeah. three days in the middle of August 69. It was an even bigger reprise of the Monterey Pop Festival, which the Doors also hadn't been invited to. Jack Holtzman, Bill Graham, and Bill Siddons all begged and pleaded with the band to please. But they were told that Jim had sworn he would never play outdoors again. Jim was relieved. In fact, he spent the weekend with some friends in the desert near Palm Springs. <laughs> Such a great song. It really is. His brain is squirming like a toad. Others that didn't attend, Bob Bob Dylan. He didn't couldn't be bothered with it. He couldn't be bothered with it. Uh, Elvis wasn't there, although there were several Elvis sightings. That's <laughs> 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 true. And Joni Mitchell. Now yeah. this is a very interesting story okay. because Joni wrote the defining song. Mm-hmm. Woodstock. Called Woodstock. Right. And here she explains how this came about. The uh, next song that I'm going to play is um, about one of these pop festivals that they've been having around the world lately. Um, it's one that I didn't really get to go to. Um, I'd been playing the night before in Chicago with a, a band, friends of mine, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, etc., etc. What an understatement. And, uh, yeah. It was their first professional appearance, and we were all kind of excited about it. And the next night, we were supposed to all play in Woodstock, and I had to do a TV show the next day, so I kind of got left behind because they were having problems getting people in and getting them back out again and everything. Wow. I wrote a little song for my friends to sing and, and uh, for myself to sing as well, and it's called Woodstock. On a child well, this is her version He was walking along the road, and I asked him, I said, where are you going? And this he told me. And of course, Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young were coming back from Woodstock, and they stopped in New York and visited her. And she says, mm-hmm. I've written a song. And she played it for them, just as she did there on the piano. And they sure. said, we, we got to record this. You know, 
hearing those two songs, you have to appreciate the songwriter's perspective. Mm-hmm. Joni. Yeah. And, and wasn't Joni Mitchell and Graham Nash an item yeah, at the I th- time? Yeah, I think they were, yeah, they were yeah. doing it. But but Larry, now we're, we're talking before, <laughs> yeah, yes, they were. Uh, we were talking before we started the podcast. The thing is, with everyone... Who performed at Woodstock? Maybe one or two didn't make that list, but for the most part, these bands had not hit or come close to their mountain peak. I mean, Woodstock, the song by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, came afterwards. Came afterwards. Of course, their success really came afterwards. Mm-hmm. That's the same case with uh, well, Richie Havens. Uh, Joan Baez, Arlo Guthrie, uh, Santana, um, uh, 10 years after, for that matter, Sly and the Family Stone. All these bands, they were kind of unknowns. Which is why they got them for a song and yeah. a dance, literally. <laughs> they didn't well, pay, they, yeah. I'll tell you later on who got paid what, or just a few of them. Oh, I can't, I, yeah. Review I, them all, of I can't wait. You want a radio story? Please. It's a quickie. Okay. I have known only one person. Mm-hmm. That actually attended Woodstock. Really? She lives in Roanoke. Yeah. I'll, I'll call her SB so I don't get sued. But she lives here. <laughs> yeah. And I kept asking her, what was it like? And the answer was always very vague. Very vague. But the reason I'm sure that she was probably there is because she doesn't remember anything. <laughs> she was probably heavily medicated, Larry. Yeah. Perhaps a sinus infection or something. I don't know. Uh, but that's why the story is so short. She couldn't remember much about it. That's <laughs> much crummy radio story. Uh, no, that's, uh, you know, I was thinking about that uh, on the way in. wonder if there's anyone in our area who ever attended Woodstock. Well, I could tell you who it is, but I would have to. I would have to do it after we get off. Okay, here. okay. I'll do I and I think yeah, you I'll might see. actually know this person, but I'm not going to. Really? I'm not oh gonna, well, now, now I'm intrigued. My lips are sealed. Now think back to uh, 1969 at Woodstock. Uh, today, the original site is a historic site. Which it I is? Find, it is. It's uh, the National Register of Historic Places. It made that list in 2017. Uh, the farm, uh, now known as Bethel Woods Center for the Arts, mm. contains a campus, museum, and 50,000-seat amphitheater. Well, I didn't know that. I, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, here's an odd and often funny sideline to Woodstock. Uh, it just so happens that on sleepy Route 17B in mm-hmm. White Lake, that's okay. the road leading to Woodstock, there was a little mom-and-pop motel called the El Monaco Motel, old and moldy and fallen down, owned by a <laughs> poor Jewish family. Okay, They made their living on people going to and from the local resorts in the Catskill Mountains. Uh-huh. So they survived basically on spring and summer. Mm-hmm. And starved to death in the winter. This motel was, in fact, for sale as the Tiber family was pretty much tired of living hand-to-mouth and the few customers that stopped and stayed. Sure. And then one day, a guy named Michael Lang, one of the organizers of the Woodstock Festival, having problems getting a permit, 
called up the Almonico Motel and wanted to know where they were located and how to find them by helicopter. <laughs> they thought it was a joke. <laughs> he flew right over, just four miles from the site of the festival, to meet mm-hmm. with Elliot Tiber, the son of the owners, about using their permit to operate and using the motel as a base for their offices mm. and a place where some acts could stay nearby. He gladly welcomed Mike Lang, and suddenly the sleepy little motel was adding rooms, renting spaces next to the lake to lay down on <laughs> making big bucks. Elliot, the son, by the way, yeah. uh, even accompanied Mike Lang to the local bank to help him open an account. He said, we went with a bag, gigantic bag of money. <laughs> it's a shock to staff. Anyway, so that the performers and staff and people involved could get paid on a regular basis. Elliot Tiber, by the way, wrote a book about this wild couple of days uh-huh. called Knock on Woodstock, <laughs> which in turn was made into a movie called Ticket to Freedom, a feature film that featured much of the crazy stuff that went on there. It's, it's just a great film. If you've never seen it, it's just a million laughs. I'm going to have to see that. A lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so seconds guessing time. Uh, do I even get a prize, or is it worth... Oh, certainement. <laughs> certainement. In fact, I'm glad you mentioned it, because this runs before that. Okay. Okay. From the prize closet, this freshly laundered Woodstock t-shirt. Oh, no. A real collector's item, Lair. Okay. Unfortunately, it's for Woodstock, Virginia, not the famous <laughs> music festival in New York by the same name. But close enough. Close enough. <laughs> You know, a lot of people actually came to the town Woodstock, uh, where I practically grew up there. Yeah. Thinking it was where the musical festival was being held, they ended up in, at the Shenandoah County Fair, <laughs> being held at the same time, uh, featuring one of the longest and finest midways in Virginia. And unfortunately, the only pig pen they feature were full of actual pigs. <laughs> And by the way, when I was growing up, if you went all the way to the end of the Midway, yeah. at Shenandoah County Fair, uh-huh. that's where the girly shows were. Whoa. Or as they used to call it, the hoochie-coochie shows. <laughs> Step right up, folks, and see little Egypt do a famous dance of the oh, pyramids. Oh, yeah, baby. She walks. walks. She talks. She claws on her belly like a, a reptile. reptile. <laughs> Just one thin dime, one-tenth of a dollar. Step right up, folks. I went and bought myself a ticket and I sat down in the This was not performed at Woodstock. They pulled the curtain up and when they turned the spotlight way down low. These are the coasters. Little Egypt came out strutting, wearing nothing but a button and a bow. Yeah. I got you gitchy uh, right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get on with this thing. All right. I'm feeling the pressure with no, second guessing now. Now, I will tell you that, uh, as, as I mentioned, or as we both mentioned mm-hmm. actually earlier, uh, a lot of the, these people's hits came after. Right, right. Which, so this is not necessarily songs they sang. Okay. Okay. This one was, however, it was featured in the movie. That's uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Long Time Coming. You're absolutely right. I didn't think you'd ever see. Get that I always one. get. I can't remember when Young joined that bunch. Well, he was. I have a mental block. I think, Neil? but it was Crosby, Stills, and Nash. 
No, it was Crosby, Stills, Nash. Yeah. Was Young with him? Yeah, he was with him. Okay. But he didn't last very long. Okay, well, see, it's not I, easy to I'll get leave along. him out every time. <laughs> it's not easy to get around. Uh, you get along with. Okay, here we okay. go. Here's right. another. Uh, that's the uh, the fifth dimension, and uh, that that was probably the uh, the theme for Woodstock, wasn't it? Aquarius. <laughs> well, <laughs> let the sunshine right. in. Aquarius. That's the name of the song. Okay. That's right. All right. Featuring harmony and understanding. That's, I never did like harmony. Anyway. Just a song from the era. From uh, 1969. That's, uh, that's steam. Na na hey hey, uh, kiss, kiss him, him goodbye. Yeah. yeah, here we go. Love is but a song we sing. Uh, I've given you much of it today. No, you're not. Um, come on, people, now. Young bloods. The young bloods. Um, Let's come together. Get, no, get together. Get together. Come together. Somebody's that was gathered. Beatles. Some, yeah, that, that okay. Was Beatles. Okay. Easy peasy. Night they drove old Dixie and uh, mom to be Joan Baez. That is Joan Baez, and yeah. and that song actually was also not released no, for no, about two wasn't. more years. I think it was yeah. 71, 72. So hmm. she didn't sing that song there at all, but she did sing Joe Hill, I do believe. Okay. Get your motor running. That's Steppenwolf. Yeah. Head out on the highway. Get your motor running. <laughs> Born to be wild. Born to be wild. Absolutely. Here's an easy one. We skip the light fandango. I skip it every time. Uh, whiter shade of pale and procol harem. You got it. Okay. Somebody to love and uh, Jefferson Airplane. Absolutely. Gracie Slick. Yep. yep. Oh, love. She's slick. Extremely mean to you today. That's all you get. Oh, I don't think repeating it would help. Uh, no, I don't think it will. <laughs> and uh, uh, animals, air bird and the animals. You got it. Um, San uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nights. Yeah, San yeah. Francisco night. That's Janice, Big Brother and the Holding Company. She was not credited on this, this particular record. But she was a member of the group, Well, right? she was the okay. lead singer. That was well, her singer. Yeah. Yeah. Down on me. She showed them. Yeah. That's <laughs> uh, pondering. It's pondering, folks. He's pondering. He's floundering. <laughs> He's floundering. <laughs> Well, I draw a complete blank on You that. keep me hanging on the vanilla fudge. Oh. Yeah. Man. You did all right. You did all right. The last act of Woodstock was Hendrix. Mm-hmm. And is it true he was the highest paid? Uh, Hendrix got the most money. He got $18,000 for the performance and 12000 more for the film appearance. He's the only one that got extra money for the film appearance. Mm. He must have had a good negotiator because he had to negotiate with their attorney. Yeah. BS and T, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, got $15,000. Joan Baez, $10,000. Not too bad. Whoa. Joan, she came out like, well, she yeah, really? did all right. CCR got 10000 
Slide the Family Stone, a bargain at $7,000. Arlo Guthrie, $5,000. Mountain, remember? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. 2000 bucks. Joe Cocker, 1375 No. <laughs> what? $1,375. And at the bottom of the payroll, Shanana at seven hundred, Melanie at seven fifty, and some group named Quill came in dead last at the very bottom of the purse at three seventy five. Hardly worth the gas going out there. <laughs> yeah. You know? That is so true. What were the high points of the concert? Well, you know, that's a matter of opinion, but there mm-hmm. were some. Yeah. Uh, first live performance ever by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and yes, Young, mm-hmm. and those beautiful harmonies. Who could forget that? No, Definitely Richie Haven singing Freedom, mm-hmm. uh, which was stretched out. That, oh, that was another one of those cases where they said, Richie, Richie, <laughs> you need to fill some time. That's why I did it. Probably canned heat doing On the Road Again and Going Up Country. Yeah, yeah. Joan Baez and her beautiful ballads. And, oh, yes, definitely Sly and the Family Stone. They put on quite the show. You think Sly knew where he was? No, oh, he thought he was in West Virginia <laughs> when he was supposed to be in Roanoke. That happened. Really happened. <laughs> but, you know, there were so many. Jefferson Airplane, Joe Cocker. Oh, yeah. my gosh. You yeah. could forget Joe. Hendrix, definitely. Country Joe and the Fish, the band. Well, watch the movie and decide for yourself. That's all I got to say. Oh, and I'll bet you want to know this. What's that? What did the whole shebang earn the investors after they put up that half million dollars? Well, let me tell you something. Uh The company they formed called Woodstock Ventures Incorporated grossed more than $100 million on the soundtrack album, sold more than 6 million units. Uh, grossed more than $100 million on the record. Mm-hmm. Michael Lang and his partner got their investment back, plus nearly $40,000 each. Not a bad take overall. Not at all. And uh, the, uh, it would have made a lot more money, but they actually just they sold the movie rights for a, a flat amount. Mm-hmm. If they'd have gotten a percentage, they'd all been wealthy beyond compare. And uh, I think that uh, the record company got a special deal from them, too. But yeah, anyway, yeah. but yeah, everybody made their money back. One last thing before we beat the subject to death. Yeah. Were there a lot of food trucks, kiosks, and food vendors at Woodstock? I hope so. <laughs> oh, forget about it. There was hardly anything. If you didn't take your own bologna sandwich or whatever, <laughs> you were pretty much out of luck. Although the organizers eventually flew in thousands of cups and paper plates and basic foods, and and all of that was given away, Mm -hmm. one attendee, Diana Thompson, uh, said, it's true there wasn't a lot of food and that people had, uh, but from time to time there would be a great big bag of oranges or apples, and they'd come and say, take this and pass it on, and we would sort of, that would sustain you for another half day or something. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, there were a few vendors. Seven Up, for instance, was selling soft drinks. Oh my! They were there. I don't know how they did that. Water and porta johns were also at a premium if you could find one at all. <laughs> it was a mess. Wow! Yeah, what an event. Yep, sure was. But uh, it's definitely an event that went down in music history. Well, before we wrap up this uh, podcast, remembering Woodstock, we should remember a few. Musical names that passed away recently. Dennis D.T. Thomas, Cool in the Gang's longtime saxophone player, passed away peacefully at his home in New Jersey on August 7th. Dennis, 
an alto saxophone player, flutist, percussionist, as well as master of ceremonies at the band's shows. I wasn't aware of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Along with being a standout member of the horn section, he also served as the budget hawk. Well, for heaven's sake. He was the bean counter. There was nothing that he couldn't do. Apparently not. Uh, Reportedly carrying the group's earnings in a paper bag in the bell of his horn. Well, hopefully he remembered to take the money out before he tried to play. (laughs) Uh, DT was one of the three founding members uh, still alive uh, before today. Now there are only two. Uh, DT Thomas was 70. The band has earned two Grammy Awards and seven American Music Awards. Mm. They were honored in 2014 with a Soul Train Lifetime Achievement Award, wow. and their music is heavily sampled and featured on film soundtracks, including those for Rocky, Saturday Night Fever, and Pulp Fiction. Whoa. Singer and blues guitarist Ellen McElwain passed away June 23 at the age of 75 in Calgary. In the mid-60s, she played guitar with Jimi Hendrix Whoa. in Grunge Village. Uh-huh. And after one album in 1968 as the leader of the band Fear. I never heard of that. Me. Vic Briggs has also passed. Uh, guitarist for Eric Burden and the Animals oh. during their California years. Passed away on June 38, 76. He was featured on three albums for the group in 67 and 68 that were produced uh, and produced top uh, hit singles. Mm-hmm. When I was young... Monterey, San Francisco Nights, and Sky Pilot. Wow. All great songs. And Nancy Griffith, a Texas-born singer-songwriter celebrated in folk and country music circles, has passed away. She helped uh, Kathy Matea score a country top five hit with Love at the Five and Dime. Also, Susie Boggess got a top ten hit from her, Outbound Plane, which I love that song. And one of her better known songs was the song From a Distance, a song written and composed by Julie Gold. However, it was Bette Midler's version that had the commercial success. I think that's the most beautiful song. I never got tired of it. And uh, Nancy made it her own. For, uh, for country music, uh, Nancy Griffith also uh, toured with Buddy Holly's band, The Crickets, John Prine, Susie Boggess, Judy Collins, recorded duets with Amy Lou Harris, uh, John Prine, Don McLean, Jimmy Buffett, Willie Nelson, The Chieftains, John Stewart, and Darius Rucker, uh, lead singer of Hootie and the Blowfish. Uh, Nancy Caroline Griffith's inspiration? Loretta Lynn. Really? Yeah. She died Friday the 13th, August 13th, in Nashville, at 68. You know, this has been so ponderously serious that I thought maybe we just, I'm, I ought to throw this out. Oh. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, we've just been through a real hot period. Yes, we it's, have. In yeah. fact, it's yeah. still hot. You know how hot it is? Uh, how hot has it been? Uh, I saw a fire hydrant chasing a dog. <laughs> <laughs> A crummy line that I could not resist. I'm sorry. That's terrible line. Shall we put the wraps on this podcast? Oh, please. <laughs> please. Give me some relief. 
Hey, we appreciate you listening to episode 25 of Two Larrys and a Mike. If you like Two Larrys and a Mike, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app, uh, your app of choice, and be sure to share the podcast with someone. Just click on the share button, okay? There's a new episode every other week, and we hope you're going to join us next time for Two Larrys and a Mike. I'm Larry Dowdy. I'm Larry Bly. And Mike is, and, uh, still, is still, still in the rehearsal. Still rehearsing yes, his yes. harpsichord. You know, you just don't hear very, very many good harpsichord songs anymore. No, no. You know what I've decided I like, hate about harpsichords? They're irritating. I think they're irritating. I really do. Uh, because they don't sustain notes. Did you ever think about that? I, no, I have not. And Well, think about it, Larry. Yes. Between now and the next time, think about it. Okay, <laughs> goodbye.